you're very kind in your, your introduction. I, I really should say that I am a mere academic, okay? Um, so I have a bit of knowledge to offer you today. I don't know if I have that much wisdom. Never mind organizing my spiritual life. There are mornings where I can barely organize my breakfast, okay? So I just want to sort of emphasize that. And I'm going to talk today about my Sarek heart, uh, 13, um, 1260 to 1327, 1328. <clears throat> I suppose a surprising number of Western thinkers or, or Western studies or translations of Ibn Arabi make some kind of reference to my Sarek heart. While some simply reference him in passing, others, such as Ralph Austin, um, talk about striking resemblances, whilst... Um, Richard Netton, in his 1989 work, Allah Transcendent, actually describes uh, Ibn Arabi as the Meister Eckhart of the Islamic tradition. Now, there's certainly something exotic in bringing together two figures as different as Eckhart and Ibn Arabi. And ecumenical agendas rightly find something reassuring in, the, in, in bringing together two spiritual vocabularies as different as those of a Sufi saint and a Dominican preacher. However, the perfectly laudable desire to discern common elements amongst disparate vocabularies is no justification in itself. However forcefully certain resemblances may strike us, it does remain a, a point of debate whether those superficial similarities actually reveal a deeper core of common thought. Now, without even having read a, a word of either thinker's works, it's not difficult to see why people often um, link them together. Um, two figures who both attempt a radical synthesis of the mystical with the philosophical and who both um, suffer persecution from the authorities as a result. Two figures who embark upon journeys or pilgrimages lasting years in some cases, obviously um, Seville to Damascus, Erfurt to Avignon, uh, and who draw groups of disciples after them, Suzo, Taula, uh, Dawar al-Khaizri, al-Kashani. Um, even the modern critical debates surrounding the thinkers seem to be analogous. Um, the, the same allegations of pantheism, uh, the same debates about the denominational status or their orthodoxy, Shia or Sunni, uh, Catholic or early precedent of the Reformation. Um, and there's even the same um, comparisons with Far Eastern thought systems. Ueda, Suzuki, and obviously in, in Ibn Arabi's case, Izutsu. However, it's, it's these, all these lists of similarities may be enough to invite comparisons, but what I'm going to try and do is talk about um, some elements which perhaps could or could not ground these comparisons in a, in a deeper core of common thought. And there's five points, and I'm only going to talk about three of them, because we don't have time to go through all five. Um, and the first point, and um, I'm asking you to look at the, the... You should have two sheets here, one to ten of, of extracts. You may have to... I'm sorry, you, you may have to... Um, self and other, you may have to find someone to share your, your, your text with. So the first section I'm talking about is um, oneness and multiplicity, Einheit and Tawhid. As Neoplatonism plays, as Neoplatonism plays a central role in the works of both thinkers, um, it's not surprising to find a, a common emphasis of one on oneness. Obviously, this is Eckhart as reader of Proclus and Dionysius, and Ibn Arabi as reader of Plotinus. 
in the, in, in the form of the natural theology of Aristotle, yeah, which was really the last few, five sections of, the, of Plotinus's Aeneids. Um, the main point I want to try and make here is that um, although both Eckhart and Ibn Arabi present an all-encompassing oneness as the source of all multiplicity in the cosmos, um, Eckhart's attitude towards the relationship between the one and the multiple is more Neoplatonic and less Aristotelian than that of Ibn Arabi. Do not let manyness veil you from the Tawhid of Allah, writes, writes Ibn Arabi in the Futuhan. And indeed, the imminence of God is, is made visible through the variety of his effects, effects which, as we are told, spring from one single substance, one primordial source. Um, so whoever would seek gnosis in this sense must learn to see, again, quoting Ibn Arabi, the details in the whole and also as part of the whole. Um, so for Ibn Arabi, multiplicity, or kathra, correctly perceived, is a means of returning to the one via the multiple. And this is where Eckhart's idea of the one's relationship to the multiple seems to be different. Um, although Eckhart naturally concedes that God is one, Deus Unus Est, and he's also happy to acknowledge that um, all things find, I quote Eckhart, all things find themselves and the fullness of their being in the one by virtue of their indistinction and unity, um, the idea of returning to the one via the multiple never really emerges as a, as a central motif in Eckhart's work. There's certainly moments in the vernacular sermons where it takes place. I quote, grasp God in all things, for God lies in all things. Um, but for the most part, multiplicity, um, for the most part, I would say it's, it's generally overshadowed by a negative impression of the multiple. Um, one which offers little promise of a breakthrough, Durchbruch, to the God beyond God. Uh, unity, I quote again Eckhart, unity unites all multiplicity, but multiplicity does not unite unity. Eckhartian multiplicity in this sense is a fall, a consequence of a fall from a harmonious, ineffable purity to a fragmentary, impure confusion. Um, often used as a synonym for creatureliness or nothingness, multiplicity has to be fled, renounced, purged, if we are to uh, obtain union with the one. Now, Ibn Arabi, on the other hand, sees multiplicity as an extension, perhaps even a development of the one, um, as opposed to some sort of fragmentary consequence of a divine overflow. Um, the phenomenal world in Ibn Arabi is no residual glimmer of a once radiant source, but rather an ever-constant um, recurring possibility to, to obtain knowledge of the one through the many. And I'll give you the first quote here, number one. He commanded his servants only to seek God, knowledge of God by considering the engendered things which are temporarily were temporarily created. Each engendered thing gives them the knowledge of the divine relationship from which it became ma manifest. Hence the radically different attitudes towards the world that we find in Meister Eckhart and Ibn Arabi. Whereas Eckhart sees any spiritual attention which is spent upon the world as a, as a regressive move in the wrong direction, I quote Eckhart, go out from this world and depart from it, do not touch anything, um, go out from this world and depart from it, don't touch anything to which your soul feels an inclination. 
Um, Ibn Arabi, on the, hand, the other hand, considers such an idea in itself as an act of, of ignorance. And I give you number two. His ignorance makes him imagine that the cosmos is far removed from God and that God is far removed from the cosmos. Hence, he, sleeks, he seeks to flee to God. And ultimately, it is Eckhart's um, unwillingness to believe in the ability of the believer to glimpse um, God through his effects, to, 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 in Sufi terms, to, to glimpse God's inward dimension, his batin, through his zahir, through his outward dimension, that probably constitutes the most fundamental difference here in this relationship between the two thinkers towards the, the, the attitude of, of, um, of, of God towards the multiple. Now, why does such a distinction make Ibn Arabi more Aristotelian? Well, to grasp this, you, we have to recall how, for Ibn Arabi, creation, the world of everyday phenomena, is a constant selective, divine, a constant selective actualizing of the divine mind, which in itself contains an infinite store of images, which are waiting to be brought into existence. Um, awaiting, that's supposed to be translated into corporeal uh, reality. So, for Ibn Arabi, creation is literally a constant marrying of the possible with the actual. And Ibn Arabi, in his description of this, follows the Aristotelian privileging of actuality over possibility by bringing the concept of Rahman, of mercy, into the idea of creation. If you'll recall, um, the, the non-existent possible things, are, are God relieves them of their misery in an act of gratuitous kindness, imtinan, thus bringing them into existence um, by bestowing upon them what Ibn Arabi, as Ibn Arabi puts it, by bestowing upon them the sweet pleasure of existence. Now, it's difficult to find an equivalent of this in Eckhart, who seems to regard multiplicity more than anything else as a diffusion of the purity of the one, even a dilution of the purity of the one, and who seems to prefer the nameless to the named, the unexpressed to the actualized. Whereas in, whereas in Ibn Arabi, all things, the non-existent things, clamor to be brought into existence. In Eckhart, I, I, I quote Eckhart, all things are a, are a clamoring to be... To be are clamoring to go back to them from the place from which they came. Their entire life is a hastening back to the place from which they had been brought into being. Um, so if you like, in a way, Eckhart, Ibn, if Ibn Arabi emphasizes the outflowing or the exitus, um, Eckhart seems more interested in the return, in the reditus. A return to the one, not through the multiple, but rather through the um, annihilation of the, uh, the emptying of the soul and the annihilation of the self. Different attitudes towards multiplicity, which I, I would suggest ultimately belong to different cosmologies. The second point I wanted to talk about um, is the idea of a God as a construct. God as a construct and the God beyond God. Al-Haq and the God high. Now, a more compelling similarity could be found in the way both thinkers um, talk about God, um, both thinkers talk about the distinction between uh, a, God, um, a God we can believe in and a pro more primordially, radically unknowable source of divinity. Uh, if you like, a God we can talk about and a God we cannot. Um, but once again, I'd like to suggest that the difference here emerges 
although both thinkers have an Although both thinkers agree on this distinction, their attitudes towards the construct of God are actually quite different. For Eckhart, um, the God we worship is certainly a God of truth, a God of love, a God of justice, um, a God we can pray to, imagine, invoke. What Eckhart refers to as the Godhead, the Godheit, rather, is a silent, a silent divine darkness, a nameless, a nameless abyss bereft of any characteristics prior to and beyond this, this idea of God. Um, it's a space which the soul must break through, Durchbruch, it's very important in Eckhart, a space which the soul must break through to if it is to obtain any sense of union with the divine. Um, hence Eckhart's famous cry, I beg God to rid me of God. And as long as we continue to think of God in terms of names and concepts and images, we will, um, we will never be able to truly experience the imageless, nameless ineffability of the Godhead. Again, I quote Eckhart, um, that we should forsake God um, is precisely what God intends. For as long as the soul has God, knows God, is aware of God, she is far from God. And so not only does Eckhart see God as, an as a construct, but also as something which obstructs, a very, if you like, a very Wittgensteinian ladder, which once we have climbed, we have to kick away from under us. Now with Ibn Arabi, the idea remains the same, but I would suggest that evolution takes a slightly different course. If we read in the Fusus al-Hikam, the God of beliefs is subject to certain limitations. And it is this God who is contained in his servant's heart. Since the absolute God cannot be contained by anything, being, this is number three, being the very essence of everything and of itself. And this phrase, the God of, gods of belief, is employed, as you all know, quite often in Ibn Arabi. Early on in the Fusus we see it used. Again, I'll direct you to number four. When a person rationally considers God, he creates what he believes in himself through his consideration. Hence, he worships only a God which he has created through his consideration. So our finite minds construct finite concepts for God, um, concepts which spring uh, from our own limited single perspectives on the all-encompassing one. But whereas Eckhart simply sees this as metaphysical constructs, i.e. We, we automatically apply ideas of goodness and love to, that, to God, um, Eckhart actually takes, um, Ibn Arabi actually takes this a stage further and brings it onto a much more personal level, suggesting that every individual also worships a god of their own individual making. Look at number five. The great variety of beliefs is hidden from no one. He who delimits him denies him any other than that his own delimitation, while acknowledging him only when he discloses himself in that whereby he has delimited him. And so believers are ignorant insofar as they remain unaware of any other versions of God other than their own. And obviously here Ibn Arab is referring to, amongst others, the Asharites and the Mutazilites. Um, we constantly mistake our own single perspective for the bird's eye view. We assume our own particular interpretations of the final exegesis. Now, this proposal that every believer's God is ultimately um, a God of their, their own construction uh, does have quite a sceptical flavour to it. And it does lead Ibn Arabi to some remarks which, if read out of context, uh, could be read as trenchantly pessimistic. I'll give you number six. 
Hence you will see no one who worships an unmade God, since man creates in himself that which he worships and judges. Or again, when a person sees something of the real, he never sees anything but himself. However, I'd like to argue that it is precisely the difference between Ibn Arabi and Eckhart on this point which saves these remarks from pessimism. Whereas Eckhart, Eckhart sees any kind of conceptualization of God as an injustice, an unrecht upon his ineffability. Um, and he, this is why he constantly urges the believer to abandon any names or images or, or ideas that he has about God. Um, names like goodness and truth clutter up the Eckhartian soul whose ideal state is an emptiness and an openness towards the Godhead. Um, in other words, images impede, names obstruct, ideas and concepts spiritually get in the way. And in contrast, Ibn Arabi takes a much more benign view of the gods of belief, of the construct, arguing, um, perhaps more resignedly, seeing them as a, as a consequence of our own finitude. Uh, and I suppose it is in this that you see the greater degree of godliness that Ibn Arabi is willing to concede to the world of everyday phenomena. Um, correct behavior, in this sense, does not, con does not consist in completely abandoning every idea or concept of God that we have as, as false and idolatrous, but merely acknowledging their limitations, acknowledging their finitude, being aware that our, our own perspective doesn't necessarily encompass the infinite range of phenomena which is God. And once the believer learns to do this, he can, be see, he can begin to see God not only in his own manifestation, but also in, in those of others. I will give you the quote here. He who is number seven, he who is more perfect than the perfect is he who believes every belief concerning him. He recognizes him in faith, in proofs, and in heresy. Since Ilhad is to deviate, from one belief to another specific belief. In other words, Ibn Arabi is not asking God to rid him of God, but rather to rid him of his own blinkers, those dogmatic convictions which prevent him from seeing the omnipresence of God in everything around him, particularly in those other manifestations of God around him. A gesture which, it should be said, does not constitute a theological free-for-all, as, as Ibn Arabi's own remarks on idolatry, shirk, do point out. Um, even the idolater, Ibn Arabi says, worships God, albeit unknowingly. Because the real manifests itself in everything that there is, um, the, he who worships a, a stone or a tree um, still worships God. His sin merely lies in his obliviousness of the fact. It is difficult to imagine a, like, such a notion like this in, in Eckhart. Now, I'm going to skip the next two points. Even though I suppose the divinity of the self and the dependency of God, I, I, maybe I should have decided to keep that in. This is all from a paper I wrote five years ago. Um, but I'm going to go on to the hermeneutics and uh, look at the different attitudes towards interpretation in Ibn Arabi and Eckhart now. So, number five. Infinite hermeneutics, seas without shores. In an otherwise very thoughtful and informative introduction to A. Jeffrey's Shajar al-Kaun, Shajar al-Kaun, um, Jeffrey writes how, and I quote number eight, Ibn Arabi's curious exegetic methods in interpreting passages from the Quran are not sufficiently different from the simile 
arbitrary exegesis of the Bible in Jewish and Christian circles to merit special comment. First of all, neither Ibn Arabi nor the Jewish and Christian exegetes Jeffrey refers to would ever have described their own labors, their own interpretive labors, as arbitrary. Every, every symbol, every nuance, every connotation gleaned from the sacred script would have a very precise and purposeful and esoteric meaning, however far-fetched and arbitrary that might seem to a modern eye. Secondly, the fact that Ibn Arabi, that Ibn Arabi and Eckhart both believe in an infinitely readable text does not mean that their, their interpretive ideas are not, I, I, I quote, justifiably different to merit special comment. Believing a text to, be, to possess an infinite number of meanings is one thing. The various reasons why one believes that to be so is quite another. And what I'd like to say, <clears throat> the point I want to make in this final section, is that um, many that what Ibn Arabi and Eckhart have already said that on, about the knowability or unknowability of God is in many ways reflected in their hermeneutics. And so what they say about the semantic inexhaustibility of the divine text is largely an extension of what they have already said about the, the, God, the God and the, the Godhead. I suppose one of the first differences that strikes you when you look at the, the hermeneutics of, of Ibn Arabi and Eckhart is that Eckhart, unlike his Sufi counterpart, actually says relatively little about the activity of exegesis. Whereas long sections of the Futahat are given over to a very rigorous and self-conscious examination of all the nuances of, of the interpretive act, Eckhart, everything that Eckhart has to say on the matter, are, are, at least in the German works and the vernacular sermons, are restricted to two or three sermons. Now, we have already seen how Eckhart's God forever recedes before whatever propositions we try to make about it. Um, Eckhart actually says, if you visualize anything, whatever comes into your mind, that is not God. God is neither this nor that. So God remains radically other to whatever we try to sing, paint, murmur or say about him. An apophatic theology, interestingly enough, he, re he reinforces with a reference to an 11th century Islamic philosopher, Avicenna, Ibn Sina. Uh, he calls him a venerated heathen master, ein heidnischer Meister. I actually find that's quite interesting. You know, people talk about these... Given that he doesn't refer to Ibn Sina as a Turk or a Saracen. Or, he says, a heathen ein heidnischer Meister, a heathen master, a pagan master. Um, and the, I think the paraphrasal of Avicenna Eckhart gives in his sermon is, God is a being to whom nothing is or can be similar. He quotes approvingly. So this idea of a God about whom our assertions are forever incomplete um, manifests itself in Eckhart's hermeneutics in the idea of a biblical text um, which may well have a progressively infinite number of meanings. And I'll direct you to Eckhart's words here. This is number nine. There is none so wise that when he tries to fathom it, sorry, I should, uh, here you go. <laughs> there is none so wise that when he tries to fathom it, he will not find it deeper yet and discover more in it. Whatever we may hear and whatever anyone else can tell us contains another hidden sense. <clears throat> the analogy for the scriptures that Eckhart moves close to here, that of a bottomless ocean, um, has its precedence in both Islamic and Christian traditions, most notably in Origen and in, in Al-Ghazali. Um, what is distinctive about Eckhart's passage, however, is the 
the faint sense of futility with which Eckhart imbues the, the act of interpretation, unlocked secrets simply lead on to an endless session of secrets, of further secrets, ad infinitum. Or if you like in Sufi terms, the comprehension of the, of the Zahir yields no batin, but simply an endless further succession of Zahir without ever any hope of uh, touching the bottom. Yeah? Um, and so it's not small wonder that, that Eckhart refers to the Godhead as an abyss, that which is literally without end, abgrunt. And um, in many ways, the Holy Scriptures for Eckhart constitute one, the, the sacred text constitutes one such abyss, a book whose meanings may well conceivably be without any end. Now, um, the spirit of Ibn Arabi's hermeneutics has the same mood of limitlessness about it, but for very different reasons. Like Eckhart, Ibn, Arabi, Ibn Arabi's hermeneutics cannot be separated from his theology. Now, we've already seen, or we, all know, we know already how Ibn Arabi constantly stresses the how the essential reality of God lies in all things, and therefore how the ubiquity of the divine lies in all directions. In Ibn, Arabi, in Ibn Arabi's hermeneutics, we see this translated into purely textual terms. If God lies in all things, if the ubiquity of God lies in all directions, then the, the ineffable intention, the divine intention of God, lies in all possible interpretations. And if we look here at number 10... Now, let me just have a quick glass of water. We say, concerning the senses of a verse, that we say, concerning the senses of a verse, that all are intended by God. No one forces anything upon God. The reasons for this is as follows. The verse of God's speech, of whatever sort it might be, Quran, revealed book, scripture, divine report, is a sign or a remark signifying that the words, laughs, support all senses and intended by the one who sent down his speech in those words. For he who sent it down knows all those senses without exception. He knows that his servants are disparate in their consideration of those words. Hence, when someone understands a sense from the verse, that sense is intended by God in this verse, in the case of the person who finds it. <clears throat> just as Ibn Arabi... Um, just as Ibn Arabi allows for the finitizing concept of the individual... Um, towards, towards God. In a similar way, he is equally tolerant um, towards the individual, um, the, our finite understandings of, of the divine text. Our single perspective confines us to a single understanding, whereas the divine author has, has comprehended all possible senses. Therefore, as in Eckhart, our interpretation of the text is forever incomplete, but for different reasons. In Eckhart, the real meaning of the text is never reached. Um, its promise always recedes from the interpreter into infinite possibility, forever eluding the actualizing gaze of the exegete, just as the radical alterity of the Godhead forever eludes the, the, whatever statements or propositions we try to make about it. Um, the interpreter of the Bible is forever undermined by a, a further hidden and deeper sense. This undermining or belittling um, of the finite interpretation isn't really, I feel, isn't really stressed that much in Ibn Arabi. There are no perpetually deeper senses, 
but rather an infinite range of alternative ones. The shoreless ocean of the Quran uh, comprises all things, as the Quran says, we have missed nothing out. Or to put it in Ibn Arabi's words, um, the, uh, the Quran, to the exclusion of all other books, possesses alone um, all, all comprehensive oneness, all comprehensiveness. Um, and then an interpretation, then, in this sense, is an aspect of this immense infinity, one which retains its relative validity and is never diminished or undermined by some perpetually other sense. So three points for now, um, really, um, I can be drawn from a, a comparison of the, some of the comparisons that I've talked about today. First of all, although both writers constantly emphasize the oneness of God in their works, um, their idea of the relationship between the one and the multiple is different. Whereas Ibn Arabi perceives the, the presence of God in all things and um, sees this presence as a positive, valider way of obtaining knowledge of the one through the many, um, Eckhart's world is, is of use only as far as it tells us not what God is, but what God is not. In um, for Ibn Arabi, God permeates the world uh, and, and pervades um, it, its existence. So it permeates the world of phenomena. Whereas for Eckhart, the world simply reflects in a negative, apophatic way um, the radical otherness of God. Secondly, both thinkers make a dis and I, I would argue an identical distinction between a God we can talk about and a God we cannot. But again, once again, it's the attitude towards this construct which is crucially different. Whereas in Eckhart, we really have to abandon this construct if we are to obtain union with the Godhead. In Ibn Arabi's case, um, it's still idolatrous, but it, it is only idolatrous, the construct is only obstructive if we fail to realize that there is something which forever supersedes that construct. And once we understand the, what Ibn Arabi refers to often as the actual situation, um, then um, the, the, the construct actually becomes a vehicle, actually becomes a moment of mediation, rather than uh, an obstacle, rather than something which blocks us. I suppose, thirdly, and I, this is something I didn't really talk about in the, in the, the talk, but um, insofar as I can remember researching this, um, the thing which struck me most, and I think it's the, uh, the belief that a secret or latent part of the soul actually enjoys a privileged and anterior relationship to the Godhead or to the real, a relationship which, you know, you can decide ranges from the analogous to the substantial, um, offers for me the most convincing point of similarity between the vocabularies of the two thinkers. Um, particularly since all the implications arising from such a tenet, that God is vulnerable, that he is dependent upon us, and in turn, that we could hurt God, kill him, deny him being, are contemplated by both thinkers. So I suppose the spirit of these, these distinctions seems to suggest the following, that if, if Ibn Arabi's God is known by all names, Eckhart is known by none. That if Ibn Arabi's God can be found in all directions, then Eckhart's God can be found in none of them. Um, the consistent Sufi emphasis on the essential reality of God lying in all things, a belief which I refrain from labeling pantheism, um, 
does force apart two otherwise compatible critiques of metaphysics and rational consideration, gently pushing them in, in, in opposite directions. Um, even, in less centrally even in less centrally located aspects of their thought, such as hermeneutics or pilgrimage, we see this emerge. Um, the omnipresence of Ibn Arabi's God renders all directions as God-filled as Mecca's. The, um, the ubiquity of God um, renders all justifiable interpretations acceptable. Whereas Eckhart's scriptures will forever hide something from their exegete. Whereas Eckhart's wanderer will forever find that all destinations are rendered irrelevant by the non-location of the Godhead, the Sufi master seems to be suggesting, using that similar terminology and from an identical point of departure, a significantly different direction. Thank you. We'll